Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. In September of 1894, 33-year-old H.H. Holmes trudged up the stairs of the Hotel English in Indianapolis. As he opened the door to one of the rooms, he was met by three pairs of damp, wide eyes. Alice, Nellie, and Howard Peitzel, all children under the age of 16, watched him with scorn as he sat down on the edge of the bed. They had all been traveling with him for several days, and they were more than sick of Uncle Holmes. He didn't seem to mind, and he spoke to the kids as if he were having the time of his life. When they asked about their mother, Holmes swore they would see her soon, though he couldn't tell them exactly when. When they started talking about their father, Holmes' eyes flashed with annoyance. He urged them to forget Benjamin Peitzel and look ahead. Focus on having fun. He promised them their trip would be over soon. After he had ignored most of their complaints... Holmes turned to leave. He told the kids to stay inside for the rest of the day and then knelt down to speak to little Howard. With a wink and a smile, he whispered to the boy that his journey would reach its end first. It was only a matter of time before Howard was reunited with his father. Welcome to Solved Murders, True Crime Mysteries, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Wednesday, we step into the world of true crime's most fascinating murder cases and tell the tale of how real-life detectives closed the case. You can find episodes of Solved Murders and all other ParCast originals for free exclusively on Spotify. To stream Solve Murders for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Solve Murders in the search bar. This is our second episode on the murder of Benjamin Peitzel. Last week, we discussed how Benjamin worked as a con man and lackey for H.H. Holmes in the early 1890s, fleeing the authorities across multiple states. In September of 1894, he met a mysterious, violent end in Philadelphia. This week, we'll follow the tumultuous investigation into his murder, as well as the danger the Peitzel family faced after Benjamin was killed. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. On September 19, 1894, H.H. H. Holmes went to Philadelphia with Benjamin Peitzel's 15-year-old daughter, Alice. He had convinced Alice's mother that Benjamin faked his death. Now, Holmes claimed, Alice had to come with him to identify the phony body in Philadelphia. If they could fool the insurance company, they stood to collect a windfall from the life insurance payout. Then the family could reunite and start a new life. Holmes and Alice arrived at the morgue on September 22nd. Alice was a bundle of nerves. Her mother likely hadn't told her that Benjamin faked his death. She believed she was about to look upon her father for the very last time. I don't know if I can do this, Mr. Holmes. There, there. I know it's hard. 
but it might be good to see him, to tell him goodbye. I'm afraid I'll see something that doesn't look like him. Wh what do you mean? Of course it will look like him. D don't be silly. But the explosion. It burned his face, didn't it? I don't want my memories of him to be tarnished. Oh, yes, yes. It was horrific. But I mean to say, he's still your father. All you have to do is glance. No one will make you stare. If I must. Alice dutifully identified her father's body. Holmes also brought in a lawyer, Jepta Howe, to help him dodge a lengthy interrogation from the insurance company. By the end of the afternoon, the agents were satisfied that the body belonged to Benjamin Peitzel. They made out a check for $10,000, worth approximately $300,000 today. Holmes took the money with gusto. After paying the lawyer, he still had over $7,000 left over. But there wasn't time to enjoy the money yet. There were still loose ends. Mrs. Peitzel believed her husband was alive and expected him to meet her in Indianapolis. Holmes worried that they would go to the police if they found out Benjamin was really dead. He would have to permanently shut their mouths. After Holmes took the insurance money, 15-year-old Alice traveled to Indianapolis to await the rest of her family there. Meanwhile, Holmes went back to St. Louis alone. Oh, Mr. Holmes, you've returned. Of course I have. After all, I owe you some money. My goodness, five hundred dollars? It's all yours. Thank you very much, but, uh, you know, I thought the policy was worth a bit more than that. Of course it was, but Benjamin and I agreed that most of the money would go towards his debts. He owed me a pretty penny for that property we bought in Texas. I see. Well... I suppose as long as I see him again soon, that's all that matters. Good things are coming, Carrie. Once we get to Indianapolis, it will be roses and champagne from there on out. Holmes steamrolled Carrie Peitzel into taking only $500 of the payout. He then convinced her that they had to travel to Indiana in the utmost secrecy to ensure no one suspected that they were going to see her husband. Carrie agreed to split up her family into small groups. On September 27, 1894, Holmes departed with her 12-year-old daughter Nellie and 8-year-old son Howard. They met up with Alice in Indianapolis, but they were only in the city for a few hours before they had to be on the move again. A contact back in Chicago had written to Holmes, telling him that the police had started to poke around his old stomping grounds, asking questions. Holmes was wanted back in Texas for stealing horses and assumed the authorities were on his tail, but he was determined to stay ahead of them. Do we really have to leave again? I know it's a bother, but just think of it as a vacation. You're going to see all of North America. I miss Mama. Does Mama let you eat pastries for dinner? Stick with your Uncle Holmes and we'll have a wonderful trip together. When will it be over? Sooner than you think. That, I can promise. Thus began Holmes' bizarre tour across the U.S. He took the children to Cincinnati first, then right back to Indianapolis, where they stayed for several days. Despite what he may have promised, the journey was nothing but miserable tedium for Nellie, Howard, and Alice. 
Holmes made them travel on separate trains and stay in different hotels from him and his mistress, Georgiana. He spent hours every week arranging travel for the group so that he couldn't be followed. During the day, the kids were confined to their rooms. They cried about missing their parents and wrote to their mother complaining about having nothing to do. But Holmes, of course, never sent their letters. No one but him had any idea what was really going on. His deception was so thorough that not even Georgiana knew about the Peitzel children. She only ever saw Holmes and had no idea that Alice, Nellie, and Howard were staying just down the street from them. Baby, are we going to have to go again soon? Yes, I believe we'll set off in the next few days. (sighs) Oh, okay. What's the matter, my love? Nothing. It's fine. Good. I just keep wondering when we'll finally settle down, you know? Like we used to talk about. Georgiana, you know I want that. I want it more than anything. I just have a little more business here, okay? Promise? Cross my heart. We get through this together, and I'll have us on a boat to Europe in no time. Imagine us traipsing around Paris together. Doesn't that sound nice? It sounds like a dream. (laughs) It'll be better than a dream. (laughs) You'll never have to wake up again. By October 10th, Holmes was satisfied that he was temporarily safe in Indiana. He decided to start getting rid of the Peitzel family, who he saw as his final obstacle to a clean getaway. That night, he took eight-year-old Howard Peitzel to a rented home in a suburb outside the city. Once they were alone, Holmes busied himself with a brand-new wood-burning stove. He told Howard he wanted to get a roaring fire going and sent the little boy out to fetch some dinner. Howard returned with eggs and butter just as the sun set. Holmes glowered at the boy from the stove, awash in the orange glow of the flame. While he cooked, he watched Howard like a hawk. There was no room for error now. Howard couldn't be allowed to slip away. After all, he deserved a last meal. Coming up, Holmes attempts to murder an eight-year-old child. Carter here. Have you heard about ParCast's newest series yet? It's called Medical Murders, and it exposes a dark and disturbing diagnosis that not every doctor wants to extend your life. Every Wednesday, Medical Murders introduces you to the worst the medical community has to offer. Men and women who took an oath to save lives, but instead used their expertise to develop more sinister specialties. Join my good friend, host Alastair Merton, as he examines the formative years and motives of history's most infamous killers, dissecting their medical backgrounds with expert analysis and professional insight provided by practicing MD, Dr. David Kipper. You'll investigate a wide range of heinous healthcare workers, like the general practitioner believed to be the most prolific serial killer in modern history, or the dentist who led a double life as a hitman, or even the doctor and gang member who makes deadly potions for unhappy housewives to use on their husbands. When it comes to these true crime stories, the only thing the doctor ordered is murder. Follow Medical Murders free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.
Now, back to the story. On the night of October 10th, 1894, H. H. Holmes took an eight-year-old boy, Howard Peisel, to a deserted house outside of Indianapolis. Howard was the son of Holmes' previous victim, Benjamin. Now that he had the boy alone, 33-year-old Holmes could continue his quest to eliminate the entire Peitzel family. Though the boy was only eight years old, Holmes left nothing to chance. It's not known exactly how he murdered Howard, but he likely used poison. He either mixed cocaine or possibly chloroform into Howard's supper, one of Holmes's favorite murder techniques. When he was finished, Holmes sloppily dismembered the body and burned the bloody pieces in the stove. He worked for at least an hour, fetid smoke filling his nostrils and hot sweat soaking his back. Eventually, he must have realized that the stove wasn't large enough to incinerate everything. He likely hauled the rest of Howard's remains to the barn outside and buried them in a shallow grave. By the following morning, he had returned to Georgiana and informed her that they'd be leaving town once again. Meanwhile, unbeknownst to Holmes, the insurance agency was already asking questions about his case. One investigator... W.E. Gary was particularly persistent. Just like the coroner, he thought Benjamin had been murdered. He interviewed the lawyer Holmes had brought to the morgue, Jepta Howe, about his role in the case. Come in. Mr. Howe, I'm W.E. Gary, an investigator with Fidelity Mutual. What can I help you with? I wanted to ask you about Benjamin Peitzel and H.H. Holmes. I heard you received a good sum for your work on that case. Indeed. Holmes gave me $2,500. Of course, if I'd had known about it beforehand, I would have demanded a full third. Why is that? Well, it wasn't exactly easy. You of all people should know the shady characters that wander this world. Are you talking about Mr. Holmes? I'm terribly sorry, Mr. Gary, but I won't say any more. After he'd done some more digging, Gary took his concerns straight to the company president, L.G. Fousset. President Fousset, I have some new information on the Peitzel case. I thought we already paid that one out. We did, sir, but I don't think that man's death was accidental. What have you found? I spoke to the lawyer Holmes brought in to identify the body. I'm confident that there's something seedy going on. I've also heard that Holmes has some illicit connections in Chicago. I see. Peitzel wasn't exactly squeaky clean, either. What do you recommend? I say we bring the house down. Send the Pinkertons after him, sir. You're not usually so passionate, Gary. Very well. You have my authorization. Fidelity Mutual employed the famous Pinkerton Detective Agency to track down Holmes. Now, Holmes was being pursued by at least two separate arms of the law. Private investigators first traveled to Chicago, where they interviewed Holmes's wife, Myrta. She had hardly seen her husband at all during the past year. Myrta referred investigators to Frank Blackman, an acquaintance of Holmes who managed his correspondence. Blackman was probably the only person in Chicago who knew where Holmes was at any given moment, but that didn't mean he had any idea what Holmes was really up to. 
How may I help you? I'm looking for H.H. Holmes. I'm sorry. I don't think I know anyone by that name. Hmm. Maybe this will jog your memory. What's wrong with you? H.H. Holmes. Where is he? Okay, okay, stop. Last I heard, he was in Indianapolis. Here's the forwarding address. Now that wasn't so hard, was it? Is he using an alias? Heck yeah, he is. Anytime I get a letter for someone I don't recognize, I just forward it to Holmes. He must have half a dozen names at least. Show me. Thanks to Blackman, the Pinkertons were able to track Holmes' early movements, but he remained just out of reach. By the time they reached Indianapolis, Holmes had killed eight-year-old Howard Peitzel and fled to Detroit. It's not clear how he explained Howard's disappearance to the rest of the Peitzels, but at the time, Carrie was more concerned about finally seeing her husband, Benjamin. Holmes continued to tell her Benjamin was alive and well, but constantly made excuses about why they couldn't see each other. After more than a month of delays, Carrie was past her breaking point. She pressed Holmes until he finally told her that she could meet her husband in Detroit. On October 14th, she arrived in the city along with her eldest daughter and her infant son. She had no idea that her other children, Alice and Nellie, were nearby. Holmes insisted that the girls were too busy to meet her. What do you mean I can't see my children? You'll see them all soon, but Alice is far too busy with school duties at the moment. I have no idea what's wrong with that girl. All these weeks and I haven't even gotten a letter from her. You know how children are. They're all in a funk over poor Benjamin. <laughs> but they shouldn't be much longer, right? I'm afraid I have some bad news. You can't meet Benjamin here. The city isn't safe. What are you talking about? How long do I have to wait? It could be any day now, but he insisted we stay in hiding until we can find a suitable safe house. You wouldn't want anyone catching a glimpse of him. I can't do this much longer. I need to be with my family. You have been so strong, Carrie. We just have to hold out a little bit longer. Holmes soon moved Nellie and Alice across the border, making it to Toronto on October 18th. Carrie had arrived earlier on a separate train. They had gotten out just in time, as the Pinkertons rolled into Detroit only days later. Once again, Holmes had managed to stay ahead of the law. But deep down, he could feel the walls closing in. Navigating the labyrinth of train schedules and hotel bookings was becoming untenable. He needed to thin the herd. On the evening of October 25th, Holmes took Alice and Nellie to an out-of-the-way home in a quiet area of Toronto. He twitched with anticipation, but as always, he took things slow. He was determined to kill methodically. There's no way to know exactly what happened next, as Holmes' story changed over time. Years later, he would gleefully recount how he locked the small girls up in a suitcase and ran a tube from the gas main straight into the bag to asphyxiate them. It's more likely, however, that he mixed poison into their food, just as he'd done to their little brother. After Alice and Nellie were dead, Holmes dragged their bodies down to the cellar, where he'd already prepared a small grave. 
He didn't bother to bury the girls more than a few feet deep. The next morning, he sent a frustrated Carrie Peitzel to New York, claiming Benjamin could no longer meet them in Toronto. Then he and Georgiana left Canada. Not for the first time, he'd escaped by the skin of his teeth. The Pinkertons got to Toronto just after Holmes disappeared. Blast! Looks like Holmes left hours ago. He's a slippery one, all right. I don't see how he does it every time. He's tireless. I talked to one of the locals. Said he carried some trunks for a man matching Holmes's description. Apparently, Holmes got off at a station before Toronto, then walked all the way into the city. Of course. This guy doesn't happen to keep records of the trunks he carries, does he? No siree. In fact, he said Holmes brought up that very subject before hiring him. He's playing with us. He thinks he's clever, but the Pinkertons always get their man. Sure. Where to next? I don't know. While the detectives spun their wheels, Holmes felt freer than he had in months. With Carrie in New York, along with her eldest daughter and her baby, he only had to arrange travel for himself and Georgiana. It seems, however, he only used his time to conjure up ever more complex traveling routes. Over the next few weeks, he and Georgiana bounced from Vermont to New York. It didn't appear that Holmes had a plan until November 5th. That day, he took $1,000 from Georgiana and told her he had to attend a business meeting in Chicago. But instead of going to Illinois, in one of his most bizarre moves yet... Holmes traveled back to his hometown of Gilmanton, New Hampshire. He arrived at the home of his first wife, Clara, that night in the middle of a raging blizzard. It had been at least six years since Holmes had seen her or his son, who was now 15 years old. He had quite the story to explain his absence. Hello, my dear. My God, is it really you? It really is. Oh. Where have you been? I'm so sorry, my darling, but you must believe me, it wasn't my fault. After I left you last, I was in an awful train accident. I woke up and didn't remember a thing about who I was. You had amnesia? For six years. It was only recently that I finally remembered who I was. Oh, how I wept tears of joy at the thought of seeing you again. Well, I can't explain it, but I'm just so happy to see you again. We've missed you. Holmes spun Clara a ridiculous yarn about a train crash and somehow convinced both her and his own parents that he'd had amnesia for six years. Perhaps because they'd all assumed Holmes was dead before his miraculous return, everybody accepted his wild story without question. Holmes spent a couple of days with his reunited family before abruptly leaving again. Promising his parents that he'd come back to visit soon, Holmes returned to Georgiana and then left with her for Massachusetts. They settled in Boston on November 13, 1894. Holmes must have felt fairly confident that he was safe in the city. He abandoned his usual careful watch and nonstop travel. It's possible he was planning to finally sail for Europe soon, he may also have been absorbed in plans to murder Carrie, her baby, and her eldest daughter, the last remaining members of the Peitzel family. In any case, Holmes failed to appreciate the gravity of his situation. 
the Pinkertons hadn't given up their chase. They were also in Boston, though they didn't always have eyes on their target. <coughs> Be quiet and hand me the looking glass. I'll give it to you when I'm good and ready. Fine. What's he doing? Looks like he's buying a pastry for that woman Georgiana. They seem happy. Oh, I bet they are. But we'll have the last laugh. I promise you that. He's on the move. Let me see. Damn it all. That's not Holmes. Of course it is. Look at the bowler hat. And the little mustache. No, no, no. This man's far too tall. Give me back the glass. Absolutely not. You've officially forfeited your looking privileges. Oh, you're loving this, aren't you? You couldn't wait for me to slip up so you can blame me for this case imploding. Don't deflect. Own your mistake and shut up. Now we have to find the real Holmes, if he's even still in the country. For several days, the Pinkertons stalked the wrong man. There happened to be another criminal prowling around Boston who looked almost exactly like Holmes and who was, coincidentally, traveling with a woman who resembled Georgiana. The detectives were worried that Holmes had given them the slip once again. But luckily, he remained in Boston long enough for them to correct their mistake. In mid-November, authorities spotted Holmes making his way to the Boston train station. Knowing that they were running out of time, they attempted to convince the deputy superintendent of the local police to arrest him, the man wasn't swayed by their story about insurance fraud, but when he learned Holmes was also wanted for stealing a horse in Texas, he agreed to issue a warrant. Coming up, H.H. Holmes' luck finally runs out. And now, back to our story. On November 17, 1894, Local authorities and Pinkerton detectives surrounded 33-year-old H.H. Holmes as he stepped out for a walk in Boston. After spending months on the run for suspected crimes ranging from insurance fraud to theft to murder, Holmes had finally been caught. He didn't resist as officers hauled him off to the station. Holmes knew he had to play his hand carefully. Investigators told him he was being arrested for stealing a horse but he could tell that they wanted him for something more than that. He just had to figure out what they knew. You've given us quite the chase, Mr. Holmes. Terribly sorry about that. If I'd known the authorities wanted to speak with me, I would have turned myself in right away. Do you think you could loosen up these cuffs? No. I'm losing circulation in my hands. Then you better talk fast. Fidelity Mutual knows you defrauded them. If you cooperate with the investigation, Things will go much easier for you. <laughs> uh, so that's what this is about. Thank God I don't have to go back to Texas. I'd much rather stand trial in Philadelphia. So you admit it? Nothing gets past you, detective. You've got me. Benjamin and I worked together to fake his death. We burnt up a medical cadaver to resemble him and then took the money. I feel awful about it, but really, he bullied me into helping him. He needed my medical expertise. Benjamin Peitzel is alive, then? Very much so. Unfortunately for you, he and the rest of his family are long gone. South America, last I heard. You expect me to believe that? I swear to it. I'd sign a confession right now, except... I can't feel my hands. The insurance company only cared about Holmes' confession of fraud. 
But while he awaited trial in Philadelphia, police officers all over North America started digging deeper into his life. In Chicago, authorities connected Holmes to the disappearance of Minnie Williams, one of his past lovers. At last, people were putting two and two together. It was no coincidence that those who were close to Holmes had a habit of mysteriously vanishing. He was more than a petty con man. He was a serial killer. Holmes tried several times to change his story and provided a dizzying series of faulty confessions in early 1895. As the months rolled on and no hard evidence materialized, investigators worried that they wouldn't be able to send Holmes away for more than a few years. But at last, on July 15th, officers in Toronto found the bodies of Alice and Nellie Peitzel. For once in his life, Holmes had little to say when he heard the news. What are these? Sketches from an artist in Toronto. They found the bodies of two young girls in the basement of a house you rented. I see. I guess they'll hang me for this. Holmes continued to hold out, but authorities could tell that he was close to cracking. Investigators turned their attention back to Chicago, hoping to uncover more evidence tying Holmes to the disappearances of his mistresses. In late July 1895, investigators combed through the large building Holmes had owned in the city. At one time, it had housed some retail outlets as well as a few shabby apartments. Officers found Holmes' Spartan office on the third floor largely empty, save for a walk-in safe, a small desk, and a massive stove. Upon closer inspection, they found a watch chain and some buttons in the stove. With horror, investigators started to suspect that Holmes had used it to burn the bodies of his victims. Their curiosity eventually led them to search the basement on July 24th, where they encountered their most disturbing finds yet. Buried under a few feet of dirt and quicklime, they found a pile of scattered human bones. There were ribs which looked like they might have belonged to at least a couple of different people, along with a pelvis and part of a jawbone. A few feet away, investigators found some tattered clothing as well. The bones were taken to a nearby doctor who declared that some of them looked to belong to a child between the ages of six and eight years old. In all likelihood, these were the remains of Pearl Connor, the young daughter of Holmes' mistress Julia and one of his first known victims. The news spawned a slew of salacious articles and 34-year-old H.H. Holmes became a national sensation. With the spotlight on him, Holmes knew his most brazen lies wouldn't hold up much longer. By early 1896, he had finally told police the truth about what had really happened to Benjamin Peitzel. More than a year earlier, Holmes had convinced Benjamin to take part in the insurance fraud scheme. But he had also warned Benjamin that it may be some time before he could procure a suitable cadaver. Benjamin didn't actually expect to pull off the scam anytime soon. Holmes, of course, had other plans. He knew that fooling the insurance company wouldn't be easy and never intended on using a phony body. He needed the genuine article. Otherwise, he risked it being identified as a fake and forfeiting the payout. On the morning of September 2nd, 1894, 
Holmes paid a visit to Benjamin at his patent office in Philadelphia. He had known his friend for years and went straight for his weak spot. There we are. Have another one. <laughs> don't mind if I do. <laughs> Aren't you going to drink? Oh, don't be silly. This is nice stuff. It would be wasted on me. <laughs> Whatever you say. Holmes had little trouble convincing 38-year-old Benjamin to drink. Within no time, Benjamin was tipsy. He downed glass after glass with his friend's avid encouragement. All the while, Holmes stayed stone-cold sober. Once Benjamin was on the verge of passing out, he seized his moment. He smiled as he reached into his pockets and pulled out a vial of chloroform. Benjamin was too delirious to resist when Holmes soaked a rag in the chloroform and pressed it to his face. Over the course of several minutes, Holmes forced his friend to inhale the chemical, gradually increasing the dose until Benjamin's pulse stopped. Afterward, he poured a few ounces down Benjamin's throat for good measure and pumped his chest so that it would enter his stomach. Holmes explained that this was supposed to be his insurance policy. If an autopsy was performed and the coroner suspected Benjamin hadn't died by accident, Holmes wanted his death to look like suicide by chloroform. It was an unusual way to die, but one that would explain the overwhelming stench of the chemical at the scene. In any case, Holmes hoped it would be enough to exonerate him if things went sideways. His primary plan, however, was to make it look like Benjamin had died as a result of a chemical explosion. After Benjamin expired, Holmes carefully arranged his friend's body on the floor to look as if he had been knocked backwards by a blast. Before rigor mortis set in, he finished setting the scene. He carefully placed a shattered bottle of flammable benzene next to the corpse, along with a spent match and a pipe. To the casual observer, it appeared that Benjamin had lit his pipe too close to the benzene and paid the price. Holmes then burnt Benjamin's face and hair to complete the effect. During his confession, Holmes made it clear that Benjamin was not his first victim. In fact, Benjamin may have even known about some of Holmes' previous kills. After all, he had worked for Holmes in Chicago for years and had close contact with several of the victims. Authorities listened in horror as Holmes spun story after story of his evil deeds. So you knocked off your friend and then went after his children? That's the sickest thing I've ever heard. What can I say? I was born with the devil inside me. That might be the first thing you've said that I've truly believed. Come on now, we can be honest with each other. You and I have both experienced the evil that's truly out there in the world. I couldn't help the fact that I was a murderer, no more than the poet can help his inspiration to sing. I'm not here for your twisted games, Holmes. Just finish telling me what happened. <laughs> All in good time. But I want you to know, I was made to kill those children. Don't misunderstand me. I didn't enjoy it. I was simply fulfilling my duty like a soldier. I felt nothing at all as I watched them die. Holmes' true victim count may never be known, but detectives found evidence that he had murdered at least nine people in total. However, he was only ever convicted for one. 
In October of 1895, 34-year-old H.H. Holmes was put on trial for murdering Benjamin Peitzel. He was sentenced to be hanged. After the conviction, police decided not to pursue charges for the deaths of Alice and Nellie, as it wouldn't have changed his ultimate fate. But even after he was condemned to die, Holmes enjoyed his time in the spotlight. Now, with nothing to lose, he gave a new confession to a Hearst newspaper, this time claiming to have murdered 27 people during his lifetime. The newspaper allegedly paid him $7,500 for the tell-all confession, but it was later found out to be largely fabricated. Holmes said whatever he could to become infamous. In fact, some of the people he claimed to have murdered were still living at the time the article was written. Afterward, he reportedly told journalists that he was possessed by Satan and had started growing horns because of his unforgivable sins. Sensational reports continued to circulate until there were rumors that he'd killed hundreds of people in his so-called murder castle back in Chicago. All the lies and press baiting may have cemented his legacy as one of history's most notorious villains, but it didn't help H.H. Holmes escape justice. On May 7, 1896, at the age of 34, he was hanged in Philadelphia. Since then, the lurid stories about Holmes have multiplied. Often, tales about his life have taken his false confessions at face value or have even embellished his already outlandish lies. In some ways, he has become the very symbol of the American serial killer, an unstoppable, completely depraved monster. But while he was undoubtedly evil, beneath all the hype, H.H. Holmes was really just a madman who got lucky. He used people as tools, never truly knowing love or companionship. Though he committed countless crimes, perhaps his most tragic was the murder of Benjamin Peitzel, the only man who Holmes might have counted as a friend. The subsequent murder of Benjamin's family showed that Holmes truly had no feeling for anyone aside from himself. If H.H. Holmes wanted to be remembered as a monster, then he got his wish. But no amount of infamy could ever fill the cavernous void in his soul. Thanks again for tuning in to Solved Murders. We'll be back next Wednesday with a new episode. For more information on H.H. H. Holmes, among the many sources we used, we found the book H.H. H. Holmes, The True History of the White City Devil by Adam Selzer. Extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Solved Murders and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals, like Solved Murders for free, from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Solved Murders on Spotify, just open the app and type Solved Murders in the search bar. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Solved Murders True Crime Mysteries was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound design by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Isabella Way. 
This episode of Solved Murders was written by Terrell Wells, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Tom Bauer, Tiana Camacho, Joe Hernandez, Harris Markson, K.G. Tang, and Jen Wong. It stars Wendy McKenzie and Carter Roy. Killer nurses, deranged doctors, mad scientists. Don't forget to check out the new ParCast original series, Medical Murders. Every Wednesday, meet the worst the medical community has to offer. Men and women who took an oath to save lives, but instead use their expertise to develop more sinister specialties. Follow Medical Murders free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.